Welcome to the CSIS Kaja Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Will Colson. In this episode, we look at U.S.-China relations ahead of the first summit between President Donald Trump and Xi Jinping. As we approach a pivotal period in U.S.-China relations following an election campaign filled with tough rhetoric from President Donald Trump that characterized the Chinese as responsible for various U.S. economic shortcomings, Chinese President Xi Jinping and Trump are meeting at Trump's estate, the Mar-a-Lago, in Florida. For their part, the Chinese have largely taken a wait-and-see approach since Trump came to office and used conciliatory public language, including during Secretary of State Rex Tillerson's visit to Beijing in mid-March. In part, perhaps, because some attention in the Chinese Communist Party has already turned to the 19th Party Congress, which will be held in the fall of 2017. To get some perspective on developments in China and the state of U.S.-China relations, we sat down with Dr. Jeff Wasserstrom, longtime China watcher and historian who serves as Chancellor's Professor of History at the University of California, Irvine. We asked Jeff to explain some of the trends and ideas that are animating China's politics today, compared to previous points in its recent complex history. Here's what he had to say. Well, I think um, China's going through, in many ways, an unprecedented period of, in its history, but also one that the Communist Party is presenting as a return to a earlier kind of period. So a lot is put of attention is put by the Communist Party now that it's helping China regain its place as the center of uh, the Central East Asian power that it used to have. Um, a lot is made of a hundred years of uh, what's called humiliation at the hands of foreign powers um, that's now um, being put behind it. But it continues to be talked about uh, by the Communist Party, I think because the Communist Party's story about why its rule is legitimate increasingly depends on this idea that it, it says that only under our watch, when we took power in 1949, was China able to assert itself in the world and be respected and become territorially whole again. So a lot of attention is put on the fact that before the Opium War in, in uh, 1839 to 1842, China had flourished. It had been one of the world's um, richest countries. It had been clearly um, the most important power in East Asia. That then there was a, um, a century or a bit more um, when it was defeated by foreign powers in wars, and foreign powers nibbled away. It was never colonized, but bits and pieces of what had been the Qing Empire were taken over or came under the sway of foreign powers. And the story, at least, of the Communist Party is that that trend toward China getting smaller and uh, more bullied and not being able to stand up continued until 1949 when the Communist Party took power. And even the, the nationalists that they defeated had been too dependent on America and had not fully regained um, the size and shape of, of, of the China that, that in this story should be. The Communist Party used to tell other stories about why it deserved to rule, because it would make China more equal. Well, the people in China, now there are huge gaps between rich and poor, so that story doesn't work so well. They used to tell a story about the Nationalist, parties didn't, Nationalist Party didn't deserve to rule because its officials were corrupt and its leaders were corrupt. Well, that story, and that then the Communist Party would be free of that and would be all virtuous people. Well, that doesn't work so well anymore. So the story that still works really well is this story of um, kind of national resurgence. And this has been re-emphasized and re-emphasized in um, the last, especially by Xi Jinping, but even by his predecessor, 
and a new story's been added to it, which also kind of links up to the past, that also is that, you know, under Mao, the idea was that China, the Communist Party was rejecting the kind of classical tradition of Confucianism and things like that. Xi Jinping, before him, Hu Jintao, are saying the Communist Party, Communist Party 2.0 or 3.0, whatever it is now, while continuing what those earlier leaders did, is now different because it actually embodies and represents the kind of deep Chinese past, the values of Confucianism and things like that. In late February, we passed the 45th anniversary of President Nixon's trip to China, which completely changed the fundamentals of U.S.-China relations and put the two countries on a path towards normalization. How will the Trump-Xi era fit into the pattern of contemporary U.S.-China relations? Dr. Wasserstrom explains. Well, I think we've, we've seen, we've just passed the 45th anniversary of Nixon and Mao's meeting, and so that set things in motion for a, a real reset in U.S.-China relations. And um, then normalization uh, in 1979. And since 1979 with normalization, while many things have changed and there have been ups and downs in U.S.-China relations, one pattern that there's been is people campaigning for the presidency have often talked very tough about China or talked about needing to take a harder line on China. And then once they take the presidency, have often softened that, that line and fit in with patterns that were already existing. And I think the big question now, especially with the summit between Trump and Xi coming, is will we see another example of that, where Trump uh, spoke out very, um, very tough on China in many ways while he was campaigning, but will we see kind of a modification of that or end one way to read Tillerson's visit recent would be that it fits into that kind of pattern of moving back. But of course, every time in U.S.-China relations, a new administration has done some things differently. And there have been some issues that are emphasized more than others. Some presidents have emphasized human rights issues. It seems unlikely that we're going to see that with this. Others have focused more on, on trade. Continue. That's likely to, to, to loom large. Uh, but there also are there are enduring issues, but there are also some new ones. The South China Seas has never been as big an issue before. So I think we need, as with so many things, to keep in mind historical parallels, but also ways in which we're moving into, into new waters, both because of things going on in China and things going on in the United States. We're not in as good a position to take any kind of moral, high moral ground in human rights issues than before. So while I would like to see more attention paid to them uh, by the White House, it's hard to see how that would really have much uh, traction. Experts frequently suggest that the Chinese Communist Party's approach to foreign policy is structured to maximize internal stability, protect territorial sovereignty, and broaden economic opportunity. Yet China's relations with its neighbors in Northeast and Southeast Asia have grown more complicated in recent times. What has changed in China's relations with its periphery? Well, I think um, the relations with China's neighbors, it's important to think about this kind of historical narrative that's been told about China's resurgence. And one of the things about kind of reclaiming the position that China used to have is to be the clearly dominant power and to have some kinds of degree of dependency with its neighbors. And also, the other thing that's important is the, the Chinese economy has begun to slow. Um, 
China is very concerned with keeping the economy ticking along, and one way to do that is through um, economic projects and development projects. And near neighbors are one place to head that way. They're also looking further afield with things like um, the One Belt, One Road. So I think in the symbolic realm, the part of the story of China regaining its place is also is being told through uh, some degree of deference uh, by um, neighbors. And we've seen some examples of both this kind of increasing economic tie and a degree of being able to also be an ally to Beijing in certain kind of political situations. One thing that really concerns me is the um, connection with Thailand, for example, with um, one of the booksellers, the Hong Kong booksellers being, it seems, snatched from uh, Thailand, and also the Thai government um, blocking Joshua Wong from uh, the Hong Kong activists from entering Thailand to speak, presumably because of pressure um, from Beijing. So I think Beijing is trying to, for a variety of different reasons, trying to uh, cultivate um, relations with its neighbors, both for a kind of, if possible, symbolic deference, but also strategic value with things like political issues and also just kind of economic reasons. And there's both uh, among some of China's neighbors, especially the poorer, less developed ones, there's an interest in um, what China has to offer economically um, because of history and because of specific politics. There's also sometimes a wariness, so it goes in different directions. Um, but also things are being shaken up so quickly. I mean, for, for somebody you know, who remembers, you know, a childhood of the Vietnam War, it seems utterly strange to me that one of America's most dependable Southeast Asian partners now seems to be the still Communist Party-run Vietnam, and that, that's a country with particular tensions with China. And then the Philippines, which used to be, you could take for granted, would be clearly in the American camp, is now um, moving between uh, China and the U.S. So it's really a whole kind of region in, in flux. As the Trump administration begins to frame its China policy and the Chinese Communist Party determines the next cohort for its leadership, here at CSIS, we'll be watching. That's our show. Special thanks to Dr. Jeff Wasserstrom for taking the time to share his insights on China and the U.S.-China relationship. The audio for this podcast was edited by Ribka Gemelingsari. This podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. To learn more, visit CSIS.org and KajitAsia.com. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, RSS, or email on CSIS.org. Stop by our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative site for groundbreaking analysis in Maritime Asia now in five languages, and check out our new Reconnecting Asia site. Also, be sure to listen to our latest China Power podcast. I'm Will Coulson. Thanks for listening.